I'm, I'm just out, all right? Um, or maybe uh, for, for you, it's something else that, that distinguishes a good movie from a, a bad one. What is it that distinguishes a good meal from a mediocre or a bad meal for you? Maybe for you, a, a good meal is meat, right? You're, you're a steak person, or a good meal has some kind of carb in it, a, a great uh, piece of bread. One of the most controversial Facebook posts I ever had was about what is the best bread at a restaurant? Who, what, what restaurant has the best bread? And it got heated, all right? <laughs> People care about bread, right? Uh, and it, it was really interesting to, to watch. Maybe for you, a good meal ends with dessert. Um, and, and a bad meal for you or a mediocre meal is anything that has vegetables involved or is low carb or just there's a certain genre of food that you don't really like, Mexican food or Italian food or, or something like that. What, what distinguishes for you a, a good vacation from a, a, a not so great vacation? Maybe for you, a good vacation is the beach or the mountain. It's reading, it's lounging, it's adventure. While a, a bad vacation is obviously like getting sick. Yeah, you know, a friend of mine, uh, they just went to Disney World, spent all this money, and both their kids got really sick. I mean, it's a huge, huge bummer. Um, or, or being bored or, or bad weather. And so with that kind of groundwork being laid, I want to kind of introduce a question that I want you to tuck away. We're going to come back to it, I promise. Uh, it's going to seem like we're veering off course, but I promise you you're, we're, we're not. But what are the distinguishing characteristics of a Christian? Right? What, what, what is the distinguishing mark of a Christian? What is it that a Christian looks like, especially in this culture? And I want to kind of go back to Israel before we talk about uh, Christianity and Jesus and the church and all that. And I want to start our conversation in Exodus 33. All right? In Exodus 33, Moses is uh, getting ready to receive the second giving of the Ten Commandments. You may remember after the first giving of the Ten Commandments, Moses came down. He spent this time with God on the mountain. He comes down with the Ten Commandments, and the people are just engaged in worshiping false gods. Uh, they're, they're worshiping these idols, and Moses kind of loses it. He was kind of known for his temper a little bit, but he just kind of loses it and smashes the Ten Commandments against this rock. And the story goes on that later he's going to receive them for a second time, right? Because God's like, I still want the people to have them, right? Moses like take two. We're, we're just going to do this again. So he's getting ready to receive them for the second time. And he has this interesting conversation with God about God's presence in the nation. And here's what he says. Then Moses said to him, God, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will any know, anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? And then he says this, what else will distinguish me and your people? from all the other people on the face of the earth. He, Moses understood something really, really important here, and this is where we're gonna really burrow down on our time together this morning, is this. God's presence makes people different. God's presence makes people different. It makes them different from their neighbors. It makes them different from the other people in the nation. People that have experienced God's presence, they just are different in the best ways, right? When people get a glimpse of God's holiness, when they get a glimpse of his righteousness, when they get a glimpse, just a glimpse of his power, a glimpse of his grace, they are forever changed. Now, I feel like we should talk about this theologically just for a minute, if you'll let me put my nerd head on for a second or two, right? Because God's, God is everywhere. That is theologically true. He's always present, all right? He's omnipresent. He's everywhere, but God's presence is not always seen by people. You have to have the eyes to see it. You have to have the desire to see it, 
right? So right now, God is being a gentleman, and he allows people to choose to see him, choose to worship him, choose to follow him. He allows free will. If we don't want to see his majesty and his grace, he allows that. If we don't want to worship him for his power and his authority, he allows that. Right now, we're in a season of free will. We make the choice. But make no mistake about it. Just because you don't see him doesn't mean he's not present. Right? He's present everywhere. Now, the Bible also says someday Jesus is going to return. And you know what it says about his return someday? Every eye will see and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is God uh, to the glory of God. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But today we get a choice in what we see. We were in Michigan a couple weeks ago and uh, we were walking one of our favorite stretches with uh, kind of Lake Michigan on our right and there's this beach on our left and we're walking out there. And to be totally honest with you, our nine-year-old didn't want to be there. Uh, he, he didn't. He wanted. He wanted to be doing screen time uh, back at the cottage. That's what he wanted to be doing. Uh, but we were doing this walk. We were doing this family walk uh, for some reason. All right. So uh, it's Cheryl and I's favorite stretch of favorite stretch of walk. And so we're walking, and he wasn't like grousing bad, but he was kind of grousing a little bit. I don't you know, want to be back doing screen time. You know, I want to be doing this and that. And I turned to Cheryl. We were up ahead of him a little bit, and I said. Do you think that he will ever appreciate the unbridled access he has to this incredibly beautiful place? And she said, yes, he just can't see it right now. And I think that's true of a lot of people. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. Some people just can't see him right now. But when you make the decision, and I think it is a decision to see him and seek him and know him, it changes everything. It changes you. When you see his grace for the first time, when you experience his kindness, when you submit to his leadership, when you see him, you are changed by him. And this has been the idea of the law from the very beginning. The idea of the law is that Israel, you have seen me and you have experienced me, so now you are going to be changed by me. All right, this was the idea of the law. The law was not some rigid set of rules that God was trying to steal their fun. Right? God invented fun. Right? He's not trying to steal their fun. This was God saying, no, no, you've seen me and experienced me. Now you are called to be different. Let me throw up the Ten Commandments. This is just kind of an overview I found online that I, I thought summarized them nicely. All right? Number one, don't worship any other God, just me. Don't make anything or anyone into an idol and don't worship them. Don't misuse God's name or do evil in God's name. Don't do your usual work on the seventh day of each week. Treat it as a special holy day, holiday. Always show respect to your parents. Somebody say amen, right? Don't murder anyone, right? Don't do that. Don't commit adultery by having sex with anyone other than the person you're married to. Don't steal from anyone. Don't tell lies about someone else. And don't be envious of anyone's house, their partner, or anything they own. The call on Israel from the very beginning was that they would be different. It says other cultures, Israel, they are worshiping multiple gods, many gods, in part because they don't think any one of their gods can really do the job. But you know how big and powerful your God is, that he created the heavens and the earth. He freed you from slavery in Egypt. He is massive, so worship him and worship him alone. He is more than capable of getting the job done. Israel, other cultures may not care that much about human life. But you have experienced your God, and you know that he created life, spoiler alert, every life. 
He created life and he infused people with gifts and personality. He has a plan and a purpose for every single life. So you respect life. All your other neighbors, the surrounding countries, they may not do that, but you respect life, all of it because of God. Other cultures may have a culture where the rich or the powerful take advantage of the less powerful and the poor, where stealing is a way of life or lying is a way of life. But you understand that God is a God of generosity and God is a God of truth. So you are different. And if there were four words that were supposed to describe Israel during this Old Testament time, here's the four words I would give you. Not so with you. Not so with you. You've experienced me. You've seen me. You know me. You are called to be different. And this has always been part of God's strategy of what it means to be a good neighbor. Right? We're in this neighbor uh, series right now, and this is a part of God's strategy for what it means to be a good neighbor, that we are different, holy. Bible's word, distinguished. Right? I love that word, right? Because no one's ever described me that way before. Right? You're, you're so distinguished in the pulpit. <clears throat> that we are called to, I've been called a lot of things, not that, but um, we are called to be different, holy and distinguished. It's a call to be the weird neighbors. It's a call to be the odd neighbors in the most positive way. Now, this idea from the Old Testament carries forward into the New Testament. And different uh, gospel writers in the New Testament, they share kind of their different strategies for how Christians that have experienced God and know God and worship God, how they are supposed to be different in their neighborhood uh, and around the people that they know and and love. And so I want to cover just two or three of these. Um, Each one is is kind of a short text, but I want to show you how the gospel writers kind of infuse this into various cultures uh, all around the the first century world. And then I want to talk right at the end about our world and specifically even about Decatur and how we can live these truths out here. Uh, Here's what Peter says in 1 Peter 2. My voice popped there a little bit. All right. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day he visits us. Submit yourselves to the Lord uh, to, uh, uh, to, to the Lord's sake for every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So, when Peter was writing this, uh, he was writing to a group of people that had been scattered as the result of persecution. And they'd specifically been scattered to what is now kind of modern-day Turkey, uh, which was controlled by Rome, uh, largely controlled by Rome, uh, because the whole world was largely controlled by Rome. And so these people had been scattered from their houses. They'd been scattered from their neighbors. They'd been scattered to the other side of of the planet, in in their view. And they were kind of asking the question, "What what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in my new environment? What does it mean to be a good neighbor? And so Peter writes them about being the different neighbor, being the holy neighbor, being the distinguished neighbor. And he gives them a couple pieces of advice. He says, first of all, abstain from sinful desires. 
that in every culture in human history, ours included, there have been things that culture says yes to, but God says no to. And one of the great things that we can provide for the people around us, to our neighbors, is that we can submit to God's will and God's desire because we know him and we've experienced him, and we can say no when he says no. Now, I think one of the things that has gotten us in trouble in Christianity is that there have been times where all of us have said no with our lips, but not no with our actions. You know what I'm saying? Right? We've, we've, we know the right answers, and especially if you've been in church for any length of time, you know what's yes and you know what's no when it, when it comes to God. We've said no with our lips, but we've not always said no with our lives. And studies would kind of back this up, that in a lot of studies, they show there's really very little difference between a follower of Jesus, someone who declares himself to be a Christian, the way they live, and the way the rest of the culture lives. And so there becomes an inconsistency in our lives. And our culture sniffs out these inconsistencies a mile away. And you know, just as well as I do, the next accusation that comes is the church is full of? You've heard this. Why, why am I even preaching? You've heard this line, right? The church is full of hypocrites. And the old preacher joke is absolutely, the church is full of hypocrites. We always have room for one more. <laughs> Come join us, right? We always have room for, for one more. That, that's kind of, The the joke, the truth is everybody's life has inconsistency in it. And the solution is not that you and I live a perfectly holy life. If we were able to do that, we wouldn't need Jesus and we wouldn't need his grace and we wouldn't need his help. It would be ideal if we could do that, but that's not the only solution here. The The other solution here is that we live honest and transparent lives and that we're honest when we fall short. We don't pretend we have it all together uh, when when we don't. Some of you have had this experience of driving to church and um, it's just been an absolute train wreck at your house. And you're driving to church and everyone's yelling at each other, no one's getting along. You get to church, you walk in the door and someone's like, how are you doing? I'm great, brother, how are you? Everything's working good in the neighborhood of my house, right? And and we just tend to act like we have it all together when we don't. And the solution is not that get it all together before you come to God. That's not the biblical solution. The biblical solution is come as you are. Grace is available to you. New life is available to you. But live an honest and transparent life and stop pretending to have it all together when we don't that we articulate that we haven't always lived up to the standard that we believe. And this is true of everybody. I don't even live up to my own standards, right? Let alone God. So everybody has failed to live up to the standards they believe. And that's why we need grace as much as anyone. And we uh, we need help as much as anyone. The other thing Peter says in this text about being a good neighbor is, he says, first of all, abstain from sinful desires. Then he says, live good lives. That in our neighborhood, uh, as Christians, we're not just going to articulate the things we're against. We're going to articulate the things that we're for. There's been a long history of Christianity on this. We tend to articulate very well the things we're opposed to. But what Peter is teaching here is, hey, don't forget to live out and proclaim the things that you're for. That, man, me and my family, you might say, we are for grace. And so you're the grace man. You're the grace woman in your neighborhood. We're about grace. We're about generosity. We're about love. We're about good deeds. And because our lives have been changed and transformed by the greatest deed in human history, that the perfect, sinless son of God became a man 
and he went to a cross and he died for our sins. So yeah, we're grace people. We're good deeds people. Uh, We're generous people because we've been changed by him. And I think it's worth considering what is a good deed that you could do for your neighbors this week? How could you articulate to your neighbors, hey, I know there have been times on my Facebook feed or my Twitter feed or whatever that I've been expressing very well what I'm opposed to. But I also want to express to you what I'm for. And so I'm for you. I want to serve you. I want to love you. I want to help you. And don't make it overly complicated or weird, right? Maybe it's just baking some cookies and being a good neighbor. Maybe it's helping out with a chore. You see someone working outside and you help them with a chore. Maybe it's loving or serving them in some very simple way, but live good lives in the neighborhood. The other thing he says is submit to governing authorities. Now this may sound out of place about being a good neighbor, but it's really not. You know why? Politics have always been a really, really volatile subject. I've heard a number of people say, I don't think politics has ever been this bad before. I'm always like, you need to drive 20 minutes to the Abraham Lincoln Museum. And you need to walk through the Abraham Lincoln Museum and you will see how bad it has been throughout human history. This has always been a volatile subject. Peter and the early Christians, they were living under, honestly, I believe the most corrupt government ever. And Christians were asking Peter and Paul and the other apostles, how, are, how do we live under this government? How do we live under this? They are so corrupt and they are so evil and they are killing our family members. How do we live under this government? And you know, the overwhelming response in the biblical literature is on this subject, submit and pray. Submit and pray, not fight, not be angry, not get the church separated into different political camps. And I think it flows from two places. It's understanding that first of all, Government has been dysfunctional from the beginning, and it is not the answer. It is not. Now, it also does, it, it, I'm also not saying it doesn't matter at all. I, I think the reason the Bible says pray for your government leaders is that it does matter, right? It, it matters some, but good government, good government, uh, good government can absolutely make a tremendous life in the lives of their citizens, but it's not the ultimate answer this preacher thing to say, Jesus is the ultimate answer, right? That's exactly what you expected to hear today, right? And faith solves a lot of issues about family and culture and economy. And Jesus had tons of stuff to say on all of these subjects. But um, when we're talking to our neighbors and just kind of conversation every day, we want to make sure that we are pointing them to Jesus for the answer, not the Republican Party. We want to point them to Jesus, not to the Democrat Party. We want to point them to Jesus, not to any political leader, because he makes uh, the ultimate difference. And I think that submission and prayer is a posture when it comes to politics. If we make the decision to say that, man, when it comes to politics, my posture amongst my neighbors is going to be that I submit to their authority and I absolutely pray for them. I think this is absolutely eye-catching to the people around us because it is so different. You know what else it does? It refuses to make your neighbor an enemy because of their political leanings. It refuses to do that. This is what submission to governing authorities does. It says, I absolutely refuse to make my neighbor, who I know is a Democrat, or I know is a Republican because of all their yard signage. Um, (laughs) They've let me know, right? I absolutely refuse to make them my enemy. 
because we have a disagreement over politics. And here's why this is so important. How on earth are you going to win someone to Jesus that you believe is your enemy? How on earth, you've made somebody your enemy. And now you expect to share grace with them? You expect to share new life with them? As my grandfather used to say, that dog won't hunt. It absolutely will not. And so submission and prayer, it kind of doesn't, it it, it affirms that politics is important, but it says there is something more important. And I am not going to make my enemy, my uh, my, my neighbor, my enemy. I'm not going to do it because there's something more important at stake. Let's read on. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, all right, another text here, uh, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each and every one of you. I was just noticing the clock. We're going to go a little long today. But the couple Sundays that we've been back already, these have been extremely short sermons. <laughs> I'm going to make up slightly uh, today. All right, so a couple of people came up to me the last couple of weeks and like, that was, that was a good sermon. It was short. Like, you've never heard a bad short sermon. Stop it. <laughs> Every sermon that's short is awesome, right? So, all right, so, so here's the next way he says to be different in the neighborhood is uh, humility. He specifically says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. And I think the last two years have really revealed uh, in this country a deep-seated struggle with pride. Um, it's, an, it's, it's an epidemic that when it comes to politics, our pandemic response our view of culture. In general, almost every argument you hear these days sounds something like this. I'm right, you're wrong. That's pride. I'm smart, you're dumb. Pride. I'm thoughtful, you're reckless. Pride. And our culture is so filled with this attitude. But we are not going to be conformed to the pattern of this world. We're not. We've, uh, We've experienced too much grace. We're not gonna be conformed to the pattern of this world, but instead we are gonna be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And here's why this is so important. It's really hard to love your neighbor. It's really hard to serve your neighbor when you are absolutely convinced you're better than them. It is. It's hard to demonstrate Jesus to people with a spirit of pride. And so when you believe that because of your pandemic response or even because of what Jesus has done in your life that you're making better choices, how how does that lead to pride? That was Jesus that did that, right? So so even even some of the the spiritual stuff that we, we believe that it is hard to serve your neighbor well. It is hard to reach out to your neighbor well when you have the spirit of pride that says, I'm better, I'm superior, I've come further. It's just hard to serve them. And so the text gives the solution. It says, humble, we're going to humble ourselves so God doesn't have to do it. Right? We're going to humble ourselves because he will. He'll gladly do it by becoming servants. Boy, we need this in our neighborhoods. We do. That we're not taking up a posture of I'm superior. We're taking up a posture of how can I serve you today? How can I love you today? How can I demonstrate Jesus to you 
today. One last text, and then we'll get to Decatur. All right, we have this treasure in jars of clay. This is also Paul in 2 Corinthians 4. To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Last way we can kind of demonstrate uh, the, the difference of Jesus and we can live holy, distinguished lives is by suffering well. Talks about having this treasure in jars of clay. I've told you guys this before, but I grew up in the country, like pretty far out there. We were uh, home last year and I wanted to take my kids by to, to see where I was raised. And we were driving out to where my home was. And all of a sudden, Lila in the back is like, where are we? <laughs> this is the country, baby. This is, this is God's green earth here, right? This is where, where it's at. She's like, what are we doing? You know, and, and she was just really confused by it. But we, we grew up, I grew up out there. And as a consequence, for those of you that grew up in the country, maybe you experienced the same thing. But we were robbed like three times. Uh, out in the country, like coming home and it's all gone, robbed, right? Like, where's our sofa? Where's our TV? Yeah. Um, one year, where's our Christmas presents, right? It's all gone. Christmas tree gone. It's all gone, right? And so we grew up in that environment. And so my mom kind of got in the habit after the first robbery, she got in the habit of hiding her jewelry like in Tupperware containers, and she'd uh, hide her jewelry like in the flower jar and, and things like that. And she just got in the habit of doing that because no one would be, think to look in there to steal her stuff. Um, and, and here's the deal, guys. Suffering can take some stuff from you. Suffering can take your mobility. It can take your resources. It can take your abilities. But there are some things it can never take from you. Suffering cannot take Jesus from you. Can't. Can't take your joy, your hope, or your peace. Those things can't be robbed from you because they are on the inside. And so they're protected from theft. This is why Paul can say, we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but we have not been destroyed. And because of that, because of the truth of Jesus and the internal nature of what he does, we suffer differently. We suffer with joy, hope, peace, and faith intact. And here's why this is so important. When your neighborhood learns that you are going through something, and when your neighborhood learns that you are suffering, you know what happens? Every eye on the neighborhood turns to you. And they're watching you. And they're wondering how you're going to handle things. Every eye in your neighborhood goes on you. And you have an opportunity to show them this truth. That there is a treasure inside of you. That circumstances cannot rob from you. There is a, a treasure inside of you that suffering cannot take from you. There is a treasure inside of you that belongs to you and it was given to you by Jesus and it's an incredible, beautiful thing. So we've all experienced this before, but what I would say to you is, man, suffer well for your, for your neighbor's sake if nobody, else, nobody else's. Suffer well because when you go through something difficult, every eye will be on you and you have a wonderful, beautiful, incredible opportunity to point people to Jesus. Now, I could do this all day long, uh, what we're doing today, because almost every one of the epistles and every one of the New Testament letters has some version of what we've just done. That you are called to be holy, 
You're called to be different. You're called to be righteous. You're, you're called to be different from your neighbors. And then in this context, Corinth or Philippi or Colossae or whatever city the, the writer was writing to, in this, con- this is what it looks like for you in your neighborhood to, to do this. This is what it means to be uh, different and holy and righteous. And so I just want to talk about us for a little bit, and this is going to take just uh, seconds, but I want to talk about three movements that I think we can make in this community to demonstrate holiness and to demonstrate the difference uh, that Jesus makes. And here they are. Movement number one, in a culture of offense, strive toward peace. My wife has said this to me on a number of occasions, but she said, man, I don't ever remember living in a culture before that is so quick to be offended. We are offended about every single thing. We live in a culture of offense. Not so with you. Not so with you. Because you've experienced the grace, love, and peace of Jesus. So we strive toward peace. You want to be, as Paul says, a shining star in the universe? Be a person of peace. Right? Refuse to make people your political enemy. Refuse to, to make people your cultural enemy. Refuse to make anybody at all the enemy because you have experienced grace and love and peace of your Lord. And so strive toward peace. You will look, sound, and be different. Movement number two. In a culture of politics, strive toward kingdom. Right? I don't know if you've noticed this the last couple of years. Everything is political now. Every single thing is. It used to be politics had their lane, but now everything's the lane, right? The lane has expanded and everything's the lane. Um, health issues are a political issue. Mass vaccines, it's all political. And so in a culture that kind of has its fuel in that, in that arena, that burns on that fuel, you know a difference you can make is strive toward the kingdom of God. Say, man, I'm not going to make everything political. I'm going to make everything kingdom. I'm going to live for the kingdom. I'm going, to li- I'm going to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, understanding that all these things will be added to me as well. So the first thing I'm going to ask is, what does Jesus teach? What does Jesus say? And I'm going to implement in that my life. And I'm going to kind of, with laser focus, I am going to focus on the kingdom of God, not politics. All right? Not saying never follow politics. You should, because you want to pray for your leaders well, but seek first the kingdom. <laughs> Movement number three, and this, is, this one's for Decatur. In a culture of negativity, strive toward optimism. All right, we've been here 15 years. We moved 15 years yesterday. All right, um, so we, we've been here for 15 years. And I was really taken aback when I moved here over this community's self-esteem. This whole community, the, if, if you could put a culture into therapy, the Decatur culture needs it. All right? They feel terrible about themselves. I remember we pulled in, uh, we had uh, movers bring us down from Michigan, and we stopped at a restaurant, and we were just kind of making chit-chat with the waitress, and she said, you know, what are you, what are you guys doing? We said, well, we just moved today. She said, really? You just moved to Decatur today? She said, where did you move from? So we just moved down from Michigan to here, we, j- just today. Today's our first day here. And I'll never forget, she's like, why? why on earth would you do that, right? And we're like, uh, call of God. We start second guessing, right? I, I think Jesus led, it. Jesus led us here, right? <laughs> you know, but all of a sudden when everybody around you is like, this place stinks, right? And we, we're just not called to that, guys. 
I understand, and I have found myself over 15 years, I found myself getting, uh, and some of it's age too, getting, you know, old, get off my lawn guy, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, getting a little angsty about things, you know, following po- political too much, following local politics too much and getting real angsty. But we're, we're called to be different. Paul talks about whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is excellent or praiseworthy. Think about such things. And I think one way we can demonstrate the difference of Jesus in our immediate community is by being positive about our community, loving our community. How are you going to love people well when you can't stand the community you live in? It's really hard to do that. I don't know if you've ever tried. Some of you have, right? Because you've been angsting on this place for, you know, 40 years or whatever, right? And it's really, really hard to love people when you're full of that kind of angst about your community. And so this is a great way, I think, in our immediate Decatur right here community is to begin to ask God to renew your heart uh, and, and to begin to love this place more and more because there's a lot to love. There's a lot to love. We have a great water park, right? Some of you, some of you have been waiting on that for like 20 years. It's here, so you know, take that off the list, right? Um, and uh, it, it is a lovely, wonderful thing. And there's, there's a lot more than that to love. But part of loving our neighbors, I think, is loving our community. Here's what the Bible says. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Did a deep study of that word everything, and well, surprise, it means everything, all right? Um, So that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation, and then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. That's my prayer for us. We'd shine a little bit. We'd shine, we'd be holy, different, distinguished, Stars in the sky, in a dark sky, stars that shine and show people the way to Jesus. So let's be different. Let's be holy. Let's show them the Jesus way. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his grace. And uh, Lord, I just pray that we, as your people, uh, would be holy, different, able to be distinguished, that we wouldn't look just like everybody else, but we would be infused with your grace, infused with your love, infused with your righteousness. We wouldn't have a pride about it because it's all you. And that through you, we would shine like stars in the universe. May it be so of us every day. It is in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, let's receive communion together. It's under your chair. This is what we've been alluding to all throughout the message is uh, what we've experienced, Um, the the grace we've experienced, the forgiveness that we've experienced, the the greatness and the majesty that we've experienced and just how can we not be different and how can we not be changed as a result of that. And so we receive this every week as a reminder of, hey, don't forget, don't forget what he did. Don't forget what he did for you. Uh, and go out and love people the same way. Demonstrate his grace the same way. Demonstrate his love the same way. And let's be holy as he is holy. Let's be righteous as he is righteous. And let's strive for the Jesus way as we leave this place. Our neighborhoods need it. Our neighborhoods, maybe they would never enter into a church, but they live next door to you. And they can see Jesus in you. And that's a powerful and amazing thing. So let's start with Jesus though. His body given for you his blood poured out.
May we walk out of this place in his grace, his love, his peace, his joy, and may, may we demonstrate a different way to our neighborhood.